The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion listeners, I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week... Russians are developing this idea of Ruski Mir, Russian world, to replace this idea of Soviet people, in which every particular group will be just assimilated into some kind of utopian Soviet people, which is very much artificial. Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World, Volodymyr Yermolenko, considers Ukrainian identity and some very difficult questions facing Ukraine in a future post-war period. We'll also ask Leonid Bershitsky and Bobby Ghosh just how airtight the Russian media bubble is. Is it really possible for the average Russian to not know what's going on in Ukraine? First, though, to the markets and inflation this week. Let's bring in John Authors and Connor Sen. John, first, I have to give you credit for the subhead on your piece, Lead Us Not Into Inflation. Yes. <laughs> Are we starting to see a divergence between headline and core inflation readings? And what does that signal if we are? Because it does seem like we are. Well, we saw a divergence this latest month because there was an extreme move in fuel, in oil. I wouldn't build too much on it because I think that the sentiment is almost universal that headline, if not at the peak, is very close to it and likely to fall for just straightforward arithmetic reasons that the base effects have shifted. I would still be concerned that if you look at the trimmed mean, excluding outliers on either side, things like used car prices, which are now downward outliers, having been upward outliers a year ago, it's still rising. It's topped 6%. So I don't myself see a long-lasting split between the two. I think they probably reconverge. Connor, how do the latest inflation readings dovetail with labour market dynamics? It seems like there is something in the air which suggests, as you do in your piece this week, that jobs growth needs to actually slow. Explain that. Well, I, I would say that we've been adding about 500,000 jobs a month for several months now. And I think that's going to decelerate to more like 200 to 300,000 jobs per month. And that should help relieve some of the forces that have been pushing core inflation, like services inflation, higher. Yeah. And of course, wage growth is part of the picture here as well. We're seeing nominal wages growing at around a 5.6% pace. But if you factor in 8.5% inflation, that's not growth. So to put you on the spot, what is trend inflation, Connor? My guess is that trend inflation right now is probably more closer to four to five rather than eight. Mm. And so in that context, I think core inflation versus core wage growth, probably pretty close. And I think we'll see that over the next three to six months. I can go along with that. But I think perhaps the key question on this is the path from here. Alison Schrager had a Bloomberg opinion piece suggesting that 4% is going to be the new normal. If you look at one and two year inflation break evens in the market, they indeed seem to agree with that, that inflation is still going to be above 4% over the next two years. That would imply that 
wage price spiral obviously is a potentially overblown term, but you could get an institutionalized increase in wage demands and an institutionalized higher rate of inflation. Just let me jump in because 4% trend inflation, would that not be concerning for the Fed, Connor? I do think that's the right point about how if trend inflation is more like three, that's more than what the Fed wants. But I think that going from Mm. eight to three would feel very good. So I think a key question over the next probably 12 to 18 months is do we settle out closer to three or closer to four? If it's four, then we probably do need higher unemployment and maybe a recession. Three is where you can start to have some conversations and discussions about that. Right, because the Fed has been talking about inflation expectations more than mm. embedded inflation, John, right? Mm. So, I mean, if, if inflation expectations meet almost 4%, then we're sort of in trouble, no? Yes. I mean, there's also a debate within the Fed as to exactly how important expectations are, whether they're a driver or whether they're a natural consequence of what's happening with inflation. But I certainly tend to agree that expectations in their own right are important. They will change your decisions in the present if you have different expectations for the future. I think an ideal scenario would be that a lot more people enter the labor force, but not all of them get hired. And so that might be a way in which mechanically the unemployment rate rises, but it also means rising employment at the same time. And that might be a way we can avoid a recession while still pulling people in. Well, that sounds like the perfect scenario, John. Can we entice people back into a job search? It is. I think that brings us down to the imponderable, which is exactly how much the pandemic has changed work habits and work expectations. The proportion of people working from home in white-collar jobs is startlingly high still, given that the risks from the pandemic are plainly far lower than they used to be, and there is no great prohibition against coming into the office. I think we need to have a better understanding of exactly how much that changes the shape of employment and whether it means people more value security more. Those are things that it's very difficult for economists to model. It's about myriads of psychological decisions about quite tricky personal Mm. judgments, and that will ultimately have some kind of an aggregate effect. Connor, what's your optimism ratio? At what point do we feel calmer that the Fed will have things under control and that the market will accept what the Fed does? So I think right now the amount of rate hikes that have been priced into the market, I don't believe are enough to cause a recession. But the question comes back to that 4% inflation situation where if that really is the trend, then they're going to have to keep raising rates until they cause a recession. So it ultimately comes down to where will inflation settle out? That will dictate what the Fed ultimately does. And then that will say recession or no recession. John? I'm in the same place. I think the more we think about it, the more you realise that it's not exactly where we are now, but where we are in about a year's time that really matters it's possible that the Fed doesn't need to hike the Fed funds rate as far as 3%. If that turns out to be true, then you have a mid-cycle slowdown or whatever term you want to use or a soft landing, but you don't have an outright recession. If it needs to go much higher than that, which is plenty possible, then I don't see how you avoid a recession. And it seems like the bond market is also waiting, like the rest of us, for an answer. Yes. (laughs) 
John Others and Connor Sen there. Don't forget, listeners, get in touch via Twitter at Bonnie Quinn or vquinn at bloomberg.net. Opinions and comments always welcome. Later in the programme, we're going to hear from Ukrainian philosopher Volodymyr Yermolenko. He's chief editor of Ukraine World. We'll talk about identity, Soviet, Ukrainian, Russian, and the perceptions Ukrainians have of Russians. So it seemed important to consider the question of what Russians are actually hearing and seeing these days. In other words, what media diet are Russians currently consuming? Let's get straight to Leonid Bershitsky in Berlin and Bobby Ghosh in New York. So, Leonid, this question of how much Russians actually know or how much access they have to what's going on in Ukraine is obviously a huge debate right now. You've been doing some research on it. What do Russians have access to? Well, media consumption in Russia has suffered greatly from what they call the special military operation, you know, this war in Ukraine, because independent news outlets have been closed down or banned or blocked on the Internet. People are technically restricted to a diet of state TV and Internet sites that are dependent on the authorities either directly fed by the propaganda machine or self-censoring pretty heavily. A lot of Russians, however, still have access to the truth, to actual information. VPNs are currently the most downloaded apps in Russian app stores, both on the iPhone and on Android. And even the people who do not trust their own technical skills enough to use a VPN They talk to other people who use technology to bypass the restrictions. And and so this is fascinating, Leonid, and let me bring Bobby in here, because the idea that it's not safe for media outlets to be in Russia makes it seem like it might actually be dangerous for Russians to be downloading VPNs and for them to be downloading Telegram and WhatsApp and using it to get their news. Bobby, what do we know about the fear effect and whether that's preventing Russians from actually proactively looking for news? It is something that anecdotally we hear from the few voices that we can trust through this sort of fog of misinformation that Russians are concerned about uh, being found out, so to speak, that they're worried about how they might give offense to the state, how they might break the rules, and the rules are not always very clear. Leonid, is the FSB monitoring this? Oh, it's... uh, uh, I I don't think the FSB has the ability to monitor everybody's news consumption, especially when they're using technology to bypass the official restrictions. It's also extremely hard, if not impossible, to track things like telegram usage, you know, which channels a person is reading on telegram. The communication is encrypted. And to break the encryption, the FSB or whoever is trying to do this needs to have a a very specific interest in a specific person. So, Bobby, the idea that the fourth estate is missing in Russia is not true. And I mean, you know, a fourth estate that's not just state media, a fourth estate that has a variety of opinions and that is broadcasting a variety of different perspectives on what's going on in Ukraine. Yes, you can get access if you're looking for it, as Leonid points out. How much you choose to believe, that's up to you. But I hope and I want to believe that the longer it goes, the more the the state's propaganda will ring hollow and the more people will want out of curiosity to find out what else is being reported out there. And then this sort of mental barrier against believing will begin to weaken in time. 
Yeah, I mean, Leonid, will there be a tipping point? There's 144 million plus people in Russia. It's just a tiny portion of that downloading VPNs or accessing outlets on Telegram. And by the way, many outlets have started to use Telegram that never used Telegram before. And the BBC has been broadcasting shortwave into Russia, for example. So there is a small ability, at least, to if you have a cell phone and if you have a portable radio, you can find out what the rest of the world is saying. But there would need to be a huge amount of ingestion of that in order for there to start being protests or in order for a tipping point to happen within Russian society, no? Well, there's a big difference between not knowing and not wanting to know. Mm. So if people want to be aware of what's going on, they can be aware. Those who are not aware are people who are choosing not to be aware. The more people are making the safe choice not to know, the smaller the probability of there ever being a tipping point. It must be so difficult to be Ukrainian and to see that a country of that size is... I mean, how can we even know how much Russians are believing the propaganda? We know that Poles in a totalitarian state are not real. Is there any way of knowing what Russians actually believe? Well, unless you, um, uh, you're you actually like uh, drinking vodka with them in the kitchen and you're their close friend or relative, I don't think there's any way to figure out whether they, you know, what they really think. The older generation, when they're talking to their children on the phone, they've reverted to, you know, the Soviet habit of never saying anything important or, or ever saying anything honestly over the phone. So... Russian people especially are historically very good at at not telling strangers or outsiders what they think. Yeah. At some point, Bobby, is there a moral failing here? I mean, obviously, there's a moral failing. But at some point, is it a Russian citizen's moral failing? I wouldn't go that far. I don't think we we can sit here in judgment against people whose life and limb are at risk uh, and, and demand that they follow the same moral rules as we believe we have in an independent society. They are dealing with a very vicious regime that has shown over and over again that it has no qualms about punishing its own people, and they make judgments based on that. I don't think Putin or any regime can fool all of the people all of the time, but it will take weeks, maybe months, maybe longer than that, for people to begin to question the official narrative. Leonid, how can Russia be so good at blocking media and so bad at allowing its military communications get out there? We know that Ukrainians have been listening to the military communications. We know there's been almost no effort to try and encrypt what units in the Russian army are saying to each other. That's how we know there's such demoralization among Russian units. Well, I think in part the lack of operational security during this entire war could even be intentional. Clearly, part of this war is terrorizing the civilian population. And the fact that, you know, what the Russian military is doing is not really being concealed is itself part of how this war is fought on the hybrid front. Instilling fear is one of the goals. Leonid Bershitsky in Berlin and Bobby Ghosh in New York. Stay tuned. Later we'll hear more on the subject from Volodymyr Yermolenko, philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. Let's get to the supply chain now. Just when we thought pressures were easing, war and fresh lockdowns complicated the outlook. We're joined by Industrials columnist Brooke Sutherland. 
So, Brooke, first to supply chain concerns. It seemed like they might be abating, but are we being too optimistic on that front, given that China is locking down now more than ever? And, for example, Tim Culpin writing this week that the impact from the latest wave in China could hit global industry hard. We're already seeing Quanta, Pegatron, Apple suppliers that have suspended operations in Shanghai. Yes, I mean, certainly the lockdowns in China have the potential to be significant, and the ripple effects of that are likely delayed I think what's important to note from that is that there's been a lot of concern lately about whether we might be seeing a recession in freight markets, just given some of the data points coming specifically out of the trucking sector. I do think it's a little early to make a call one way or the other, just because we don't know the degree to which those numbers might be distorted by what's happening in China. Now, I will say on the encouraging front, we had results from Fast and All to sort of unofficially kick off the industrial earnings season. And they did talk about seeing a stabilization in supply chain conditions. And this is allowing companies to plan a bit better, to come up with workarounds and keep business flowing. Now, that is not the same thing as supply chain constraints being solved. But a stabilization, at least, makes it a little bit easier for companies to get a handle on what's going on with their business. And how much are interprovincial highways, both in China, but also in Russia, impacting things? Something like 10% of exports from China to Europe used to at least go through Russia's railway lines. So that is a concern. And so, you know, there are companies, including Honeywell, that were using those sort of rail and trucking routes that traverse Russia and Ukraine as a way of getting around the high shipping costs from Asia. That is more difficult now for obvious reasons. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of freight expenses. Just circling back to what Fastenal has said, they do expect those transportation service costs to continue to increase. Right. And I just want to ask one more question about the war. Ukraine, obviously a top producer of many things, but one of them is purified neon gas, and that's used in advanced chip making. And Russia, of course, is a key supplier of palladium, which is used in cars, catalytic converters, titanium as well, which is used in the aerospace industry. Will there be a massive decrease in supply of these particular metals and gases? And will that have an impact on what we see coming out of these industries? Or have they planned so far in advance? Have they bought so far in advance that we won't see those impacts for the next few quarters? I think you have to look at all those commodities differently. I do think, you know, on titanium, the aerospace suppliers have been building up stockpiles uh, and also working on alternative sourcing. And so the commentary from players like Boeing, Saffron, Airbus is that they do have a decent amount of supply. Now, that is not a limitless supply. And so this is something that, you know, does need to be addressed structurally over the long term. I think the more immediate concern for the aerospace market is, frankly, people. On neon gas, that is a meaningful input to semiconductor manufacturing. And I think there's a lot of concerns about what might happen there. And if we do see any sort of additional constraints on semiconductor manufacturing, which of course has been a pain point for many different companies. But I think, you know, in general, companies are trying to get their hands around some of these knock-on effects. It is still early days and and it's a little difficult to predict exactly where these markets are going to go and and how supply is going to be affected. It's such a complicated picture, isn't it, Brooke? How are logistics managers, supply chain managers and CEOs forecasting anything these days? (laughs) Well, it certainly is a challenge. There's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of smoke signals, and it's difficult to get a read on it. And, you know, I think that's why there's such an interesting divide right now between the pessimists and the optimists and those worrying about, you know, a potential recession 
demand slow down and those saying, you know, no, actually, you know, some of these worry points might actually be a sign of stabilization and normalization that would allow the supply chain to get moving again and help meet some of this robust demand that we're seeing. So I don't think this debate is going to be settled, but certainly we should hear a lot more uh, data points from companies and from CEOs in the coming weeks that, that will help give us a better picture of what exactly is going on here. And where the bifurcations are. Brooke, you exactly. look at a, a bunch of different data points. Freight Waves is one company that provides a lot of supply chain analysis. It has a tender rejection index. Explain to us what that is and what it's showing. So the idea is to look at the rate at which freight operators are rejecting shipments. And, you know, when that rejection index is higher, it means that they have more options and there's more demand on their services so they can be a little bit pickier. When that comes down, that indicates sort of a loosening of transportation markets. And so we have seen that coming down. We've seen, you know, some other measures of trucking and transportation markets easing in recent weeks. But that gets back to what I'm, you know, was saying before. It's It's a little early in my mind to a predict a freight recession, just given what's happening in China and some of the the concerns about the ripple effects there. But then separately, I think, you know, it is possible to think that maybe we do see some sort of recession in trucking, which has a tendency to go through these boom and bust cycles as, as you have new operators chasing that demand and not necessarily see the recession on the industrial side because, you know, in theory, a loosening in transportation markets should be a good thing for these companies that have been complaining so much about supply chain constraints. Brooke Sutherland there. Don't forget to reach out with thoughts, suggestions and opinions. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. As Russia's war in Ukraine passes its 50-day mark, I spoke with Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World, Volodymyr Yermolenko, to consider questions of Ukrainian identity and how it's changing as Ukrainians witness atrocities unthinkable just two months ago. Also, the very difficult questions that will face Ukraine in a future post-war period. Volodymyr, how do Ukrainians consider Russians these days, the 144 million people, not Russia the country? Are they aggressors, victims, friends and family, neighbors? Most Ukrainians are saying that there is a kind of wall which is very difficult to get through because it seems that a big number of Russians support this war and don't really want to hear about the suffering produced by the Russian army. And this is very difficult to understand, of course. So the increasing attitude to Russians is anger, hate, very often and understandably so. And Putin, Volodymyr, if he were to be removed by his own people or an outside force, would Russia look different? Not sure. Not sure it will look different. Obviously, the problem is not only Putin himself. And if there is a replacement for somebody else, most probably will have the same personality or even worse personality, although it's difficult to imagine worse. So Ukrainians do not have any illusion with regard to this. We understand that Russia in its current form is seeing itself as a wounded empire which tries to regain what it understands as its past glory and conquering Ukraine or even annihilating Ukraine, Ukrainian's independence and Ukrainian self-consciousness is one of the key elements for restoring this empire. So for us, it's a real existential fight. We understand that Russians want to conquer these territories and have Ukraine without Ukrainians. 
You wrote a thread attempting to put into words why Russians hate and dehumanize Ukrainians so much. It's producing a lot of cognitive dissonance that Russia wants Ukraine to sort of come back into the cradle. And at the same time, there's so much hatred directed at Ukrainians. I think we have to understand that Russia is not a nation. It's an empire. So an illusion that sometimes you see in America, in Europe, is to consider Russian Federation as a kind of a nation state, where, for example, there are Russians living with certain homogeneity, ethnic, cultural, linguistic, etc. It's not the case. Russia is actually a continental empire which conquered so many different ethnicities, which has its colonies inside its body. So it also considered Ukrainians and Belarusians as a part of this kind of imperial body. And when it, for example, sees Ukrainians saying that, no, look, we are not Russians, we are a different nation with different organization of society, culture, language, etc., this produces very difficult feeling in Russia because it believes that Ukrainians and Belarusians and Russians is the same construct, the same nation, and every deviation from this Russian nation, as they say, is an um, example of Nazism, you know. So I think that they are lagging behind in developing their own national identity. Their concept of empire means that empire doesn't have borders. Empire is always expanding. Ukrainians develop this idea that, well, this is our land. We have certain borders. We don't want to go any farther, these borders. But here inside our borders, we organize our society in the way we like, and we don't want to expand anywhere. And so, Vladimir, when people talk about a Soviet identity, as a Ukrainian, what does that make you think? Is that relevant to the current Ukraine? Well, in Ukraine, obviously, there are people who have some kind of nostalgia about Soviet Union, but much less than in Russia. Russia really developed a political project of coming back to this glorious Soviet past. Ukrainian political imagination is not centered on the past, it's centered on the future. For Ukrainians, the past is a very traumatic thing. So basically, Russian slogan was, we can do it again, meaning the victory in the Second World War. Our major slogan is never again, which is kind of a slogan also common with Europeans. Why Russians are developing this idea of Ruski Mir, Russian world? It's also an artificial construct to replace this idea of Soviet people. There is a kind of artificial invention in which every particular group will be just assimilated into some kind of utopian Soviet people, which is very much artificial. Let's talk about NATO for a second. Do Ukrainians accept that Ukraine cannot be, at least as the world is now, part of NATO? Well, public opinion polls show support of NATO membership is very high. It has never been as high as now, over 70-80%. But at the same time, what is NATO? NATO is a security guarantee. And Ukrainians do need this because they're living with such a monster neighbor. We understand that NATO is composed of many different countries and you need consensus to get Ukraine into NATO. Maybe it's better to have bilateral security agreements with the United States, with the United Kingdom, with Poland, 
The second thing is that Ukrainian army can be very efficient. And in a way, Ukraine can turn into kind of a security provider, not only security recipient for other countries. So I imagine, for example, Ukraine in the future to be a kind of a country which will share its military and security experience with other countries of the world, maybe with NATO members. Do Ukrainians understand why Vladimir Putin might feel threatened by NATO? No, Ukrainians don't understand it. We just look at the map of Russia and we can't understand how Russia can be encircled, as they say, or fear the attack of NATO or whatever. But the problem of Putin is that he creates a reality which he constructs in his imagination. So his propaganda was saying that Russia is not waging war with Ukraine on Ukrainian territory, but with the United States and NATO. This was his propaganda for the past eight, ten years. So basically, Putin created a reality which he first invented in his head. And now this is the reality that Ukrainians do have military support from the West. Vladimir, has the West lived up to its expectations in the eyes of Ukrainians, particularly since Ukraine has always looked West, has looked for leadership and guidance and inclusion? Look, Ukraine was not taken seriously all, all those years. Our warnings were not heard. So when we were telling the West that after Russian invasion of Georgia, Ukraine will be next, after Ukraine, NATO countries will be next. When Ukrainians were warning Europe that dependency on Russian gas and oil exports is very bad, we were warning Europe at least since 2006 we were not very much hurt attentively. And I think that Ukrainian self-description as a kind of a borderland of the Western civilization, which is fighting against something barbarian, undemocratic, and the enemy of the civilized democratic war, this self-description is now more and more accurate. And therefore, the West should stop looking for compromises. Once it's over, will Ukraine still want to be part of the likes of the European Union and other Western institutions? Yes, why not? Why why shouldn't it strive to these institutions? So of course, it wants to be part of NATO, part of the EU. But at the same time, Ukrainians understand that European Union has been made possible because security was guaranteed basically by NATO, by United States since the end of the Second World War. And Europe concentrated its efforts on welfare, economy, equality, human rights, etc. Unfortunately, Ukrainian situation is different. We will be for decades with the country neighboring Ukraine, a nuclear power which wants to destroy us. Therefore, we should think primarily about our security, whether we are in NATO, whether we are in the EU. So I think that after our victory, Ukraine will be a kind of a country with very strong state presence in the security sector and a quite liberal economy. Volodymyr, do you understand how Russia might continue to be part of institutions? So, for example, the UN Security Council. I mean, it's out of the Human Rights Council, but it's still very much part of the United Nations. And in a far-flung future, maybe not even that far away, you might have to work with Russia. I mean, your own president has said that. No, I don't understand it, frankly. I don't understand how UN Security Council as an institution can function after these events. 
It's unacceptable that any country of the world has a veto power. If it's not able to reform itself, the United Nations will be over as organization. But you do accept that Russia and its 144 million people is not going away. And at some point when this is resolved somehow, it's still going to be a major player on the world stage. Look, we don't know because... If my interpretation is correct, and Russia is not a nation-state but an empire, Russia is the only empire that survived the 20th century, or the only European empire that survived the 20th century. But it doesn't mean that it will survive the 21st century. If you look at Russian interpretation of what's going on, they basically admit that if they do not expand, they will collapse, as it collapsed when the Soviet Union dismantled. And therefore, the war in Ukraine is so existentially important for them. Volodymyr Yermalenko. Do follow him on Twitter. We're now choosing to end all conversations. Not with you, though. As always, we love to hear from you at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or send your thoughts to vquinn at Bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion.